live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. My guest today is a researcher of brain development, specializing in the field of neurophysiology. She started her scientific career looking at development in infants, notably visual systems and brain formation. Her more current work has been in adolescent behavior, specifically emotional acuity and learning, feedback processing, and gender differences. Dr. Grosspfeiffer received the John Jay Distinguished Teaching Prize in 2009, as well as the John Jay Outstanding Mentor Award in 2013. Her approach to teaching has been lauded by her students. One student on WriteMyProfessor.com describes her as wonderful, highly skilled, talented professor, highly organized, and a great sense of humor one of the absolute best. Please welcome to the show, Professor of Psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Dr. Grosspfeiffer. Hello, welcome. Hello. So how did you choose to study neurophysiology specifically? I guess? Yeah, that's quite a long story, actually, <laughs> but um, I'll try and give you the short version. So my undergraduate degree uh, is in optometry, actually. So, and I did that in the UK. And while I was an undergraduate, our department had a big neuroscience unit attached to it. And so I got interested in neuroscience then, and I did a dissertation where I was looking at EEG recording, where you put electrodes on the head to record brain waves in response to different types of visual um, patterns. So actually, they were just checks of different sizes, little squares of different sizes. Mm. Um, so I thought it was really cool, you know, that I could put electrodes on my friends' heads and I could see <laughs> their brain waves. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then I worked as an optometrist for a couple of years, and my university recruited me to come back to do a PhD. And I was interested in development. I was interested, I liked babies, actually, I think really what it was. Um, and so they had a PhD project looking at visual development in babies, in particular to see whether or not an amino acid in a formula that is given to babies was necessary for visual development. And since then, I've gone from sort of looking at babies to looking at adults and then back to looking at adolescents. But all of my research uses EEG recording, which, as I said, is putting electrodes on the head. It's non-invasive. We don't, you know, the word electrode is really scary. But really what it is, it's just a little metal disc that can pick up the brain waves that we make when we when we do anything actually so that's the technique i use in all of my studies very cool actually quick quick side question yeah do you find that when you put the electrodes on does that initially kind of show a spike in stress or anything or, or activity i guess uh, in any way when people feel a bit yeah. intimidated by the well, equipment well we don't or? know to 
tell you the truth because when we're first putting the electrodes on, we are not really looking at the brain waves then. We're just I really see. looking to see if we've got good contact between the head and the electrode. So we put a little bit of a, a jelly underneath the electrode. Oh, right. So it looks a little bit like hair gel and it dries mm. a little bit like hair gel too. So <laughs> we have we put 64 of these on people's heads. Oh, wow. So yeah, that's a lot of gel in your hair. <laughs> yeah, and no if kidding. you've got thick hair, we have to put quite a lot of gel in because we're making contact between your head and the electrode. So I don't really know the answer to that question. Right. Our experiments are long-ish because of the nature of how you can extract the signal that we're looking at from the bigger background EEG. Mm. And so rather than seeing whether or not they're stressed, we do see that they get tired (laughs) or bored during our experiments. Understandable, yeah. Yeah, so we... We try and block it up. We try and sort of give them breaks in between and give them food and, and drink and stuff and turn on the lights and try and be chatty at night. Yeah. Fair play. I get that. Well, also, you know, you could corner them. I mean, it's an interesting question because some of my colleagues do fMRI research where they have their participants in MRI scanners where they're looking at blood flow and oxygen levels in mm. their brains. Um, and... If you've ever had an MRI, it's a really, it's a little unpleasant, the experience, I would say, perhaps. Um, A little claustrophobic. The scanner itself makes a lot of noise. You have to stay very still. And I think people are anxious often in those experiments. So often people have fake scanners that they have people go into that have pre-recorded noises. So they're, they're like, so this is what it's going to be like. And that's really important for children, if particularly if you're if you're studying mm. children, you don't want them to be anxious in the scanner because you don't want that to be the brain activity that yes. you're recording. You really want it to be about something else. And you know, my research assistants are very they're they're students, so they're very right. chatty, they're very nice, and I think they're very good at putting people at their ease. So those are ways that people try and get around that. Mm. Moving on. When and how did neurophysiology kind of emerge from the larger field of neuroscience? And why is it important? Why, why, why do you do the work you do? Yeah, so the terminology is a bit arbitrary, really. I, I used to always call myself a neurophysiologist, but more recently I've started to refer to myself as a cognitive neuroscientist. Okay. So it's the same, really. Neurophysiology is just looking at the physiological changes. So physiological changes could be changes in electrical activity of the brain, or it could be going into individual neurons, which we don't typically do in humans. That's usually animal work. Right. Or it could be something like recording blood flow using MRI. So neuroscience, neurophysiology, it's all kind of the same thing. Adolescence is, it, it was not a very um, studied field. Is that because, you know, uh, there's so much growth and development that happens in those kind of like 16 to 25 year period? Yeah, so I would define adolescence as a bit earlier than that. Oh, okay. I typically think of adolescence as be- between, well, when puberty starts to about 17. 
Okay. And then, and then another period from 18 to about 24, where I would call the people in that age group, not yet adult, but emerging adults. I see. Okay. So, you know, the typical undergraduate college age student um, right. would be an emerging adult. Yeah. But yeah, why is it understudied? I think there was the assumption that adoles- there's nothing, nothing really happening in adolescence. Really? They're like just little adults. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which when you know adolescence, right? That seems yeah, like you're like that sounds like the opposite. Assumption. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think that was one assumption. Another assumption, or well, maybe not another assumption, but a more practical element, which I've found in my research, is that it's actually quite difficult to get adolescent participants to come into your studies mm. because they're at this age where they've got a lot more <laughs> independence, and it's different for every individual. They usually want to come without their parents which means that they're the ones responsible for getting here. Right. Which means that some of them forget and they don't come. (laughs) Others come and forget to bring their signed parental consent form that allows them to participate in the research. So so what have the results of of your research uh, kind of indicated in regards to how uh, adolescents in your sample group process social information? Now we're getting a bit more into your your research. Yeah, Yeah, well, I, I would say in general... So even though when I started there wasn't a lot of research about adolescent brain development, mm-hmm. it's really been a, 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 a rapidly growing field. So there is a lot more research available now using different types of techniques like the fMRI research that I mentioned previously. Right. And I think there are models put forward now about why it, you know, why do adolescents behave the way they do? So one thing we know is that when adolescents get to about the age of 15, they look very adult-like when they do things that are very abstract, hmm. right? So what I would maybe call a purely cognitive task. So it doesn't involve emotion, in other words. Right. Like press a button really quickly every time you see a certain letter appear on the screen. Okay. And don't press the button if something else appears on the screen. And when you use those kind of measures, adolescents do look very adult-like hmm. by about the age of 15. But what we know about adolescents is that they can make very rational decisions. However, they can also be very irrational, right? And when do they make those irrational decisions? It's usually when they're with their friends Mm -hmm. or if it's a very emotional situation. So we sort of, in my field, we talk about cold cognition and hot cognition. So the cold cognition would be when there's no emotion, right? So it's cold. Right. And the hot cognition is when there's some kind of emotional factor there. And you can make something emotional by having peers present. Some people have done that in their studies. Or trying to induce emotions by telling people, okay, you're playing this game and you're winning all these points and now I'm going to take them all away. Right. right. So now that makes you very unhappy. Or just winning. Right, so just having a, a winning, a gambling game or something like that, mm-hmm. that ups the ante. Anything that's kind of has reward strong benefit? motivation behind, yes, reward yeah. processing. Anything that's potentially rewarding. Right. Right. I guess the the models, not just from my research, but from the research in general, are suggesting that the parts of the brain that are good for this basic cold cognition are pretty mature. But that the um, the parts of the brain that respond to emotion, that respond to reward, are hypersensitive during adolescence. Mm. 
So they've reached, like, they're, they're, they're almost hyper-mature, if you like. And they're, they're the parts of the brain that are really driving this um, risk-taking, sensation-seeking kind of behaviors that we mm. see in adolescents. And at the same time, the part of the brain that controls our behavior, inhibits those kind of behaviors, which is the cortex, which is the kind of the wrinkly surface at the top of the brain that we usually see. Yeah. Uh, particularly at the front of the brain, the frontal cortex, that part of the brain inhibits the emotional parts of our brain, if you like, or the re reward parts of our brain. Uh -huh. So you and I, because we're past adolescence now, just about, right? <laughs> I would hope so, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so... We might sort of get up in the morning and say, oh, wow, it's a really nice day. Wouldn't it be nice to not go to work? But then we get over that, right, usually. Right. But then we say, <laughs> oh, no, remember the consequences of not doing that. So our, our limbic system, this sort of reward processing system, this emotional part of our brain is mm. saying, yeah, don't go to work. It's a lovely day. Go for a walk in the park or go and do something fun. And you're... And your frontal cortex is saying to you, no, you know, that's, that's silly, Jill. Yes. You know you need to go to work. You can wait till the weekend and <laughs> go for a walk. Whereas in adolescence, it's that part of the brain is still maturing. So the inhibition part of the brain is not working as well. Hmm. And on top of that, you've got this big drive from things like that are very rewarding to you, like money, like peers, like right. food. And you know, emotional situations. So what we try and do in our experiments is to find conditions that are more likely to make adolescents vulnerable to decision-making. We want adolescents in our studies to make poor decisions. Interesting. Basically. So what do we do? How do we do that? So a couple of studies that you've, uh, I think, referred to recently, are one is looking at photos with people in, right? So we know people are really important to adolescents. Right. And there have been some studies, in fact, we have a study in my lab that we're just finishing now where we're looking at people's responses to faces, so adolescents' responses to photos of faces. Mm. But this particular experiment, this other experiment, is actually just looking at photographs with groups of people in rather than one individual looking right at you. Mm, so, so we were interested to know whether or not if those are very rewarding for adolescents and mm. those very attention-grabbing for adolescents. So we used pictures like that, which we called social pictures, and then we had other pictures that were similar, but they didn't have people in. And what we found was that, indeed, adolescents were more oriented towards the social pictures initially. So when we look at brain waves with EEG, you can look at the timing of different brain waves. So some brain waves occur very quickly, and we think of those as reflecting automatic brain processes, so the things that you're not really able to control easily. Right. Anybody, not just adolescents, right, but right. anybody. And then you've got later processes that reflect more controlled and more conscious thought and processes. Hmm. So with adolescents, we found that one of the very early components, the very early brain waves, was bigger when they were looking at social pictures compared to non-social pictures. And we didn't see that difference in adults. And then we also saw a gender difference, but that wasn't adolescent specific. So again, the frontal part of the brain is related not only to control, but also to attention. So we saw for, for males, 
they actually tended more to the non-social pictures than the social pictures. Hmm. And we didn't see any difference in females. So we did actually think that we might see the opposite mm -hmm. in females, but we actually saw that they didn't differentiate between the two types of pictures. Now, just a really quick question. In, yeah. in those pictures, you know, would it make a difference if, if the social pictures, for example, was a picture of their family or of other friends, or if it was yeah, strangers, you know? that Yeah, it, it probably would. And we used pictures that are used a lot in neuroscience um, okay. studies. They're sort of standardized photographs. I They've see. been normed, meaning that lots of people have rated them, yeah. and you have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral pictures. <laughs> so they've, they're sort of a valid picture set, and so that's why we all use them. I see, I see. However, you're stuck with the people in the pictures, <laughs> and um, so even though we saw this very early orienting towards the social pictures in the adolescents right. compared to the adults, in the later brain components, um, the later brain waves, we didn't, we saw the opposite. We actually saw adults paying more attention to the pictures. And we think mm. there aren't a lot of pictures of adolescents in our picture series. Right. So we're not looking, they're not just looking at one picture, they're looking at lots and lots of pictures. So probably 60 social, 60 non-social. Oh, wow, that is a lot. Yeah. And there are very few pictures of adolescents in the social ones. So I think initially they're like, ooh, it's people. Yeah. And they look at the people right. and they're like, oh, not my people. Yeah, exactly. Right? Less so connected. Whereas the, um, the adults hang in there a little bit longer and actually, although they may not be so drawn to them initially, they do actually spend a little bit more time focusing on the social pictures. Sorry, there's another just quick side note that I thought of when you were explaining the, the frontal cortex and uh, how it has, it's, it's kind of in charge of control. I, I was listening to another podcast about lobotomies. and. Oh, yeah. Is, is that why they, they targeted it from the front, I suppose? Because it would kind of eliminate emotion and focus? In that uh, sense, or? Well, so there are parts of, uh, of our frontal cortex that are to do with emotional control. Yeah. And so I think that's the area that they're targeting. It's kind of the... They often go through the... Um, yeah, the orb orbital socket, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's sort of hanging out underneath the, the, uh, the lower part. <laughs> I'm looking at your picture. <laughs> um, Not trying so, to influence Yeah, the, sort of the underside of the frontal cortex right. is quite accessible through I see. the top of the eye socket. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is related to that. So we have parts of our brain that are more related to cognitive control, cold cognitive control, remember yeah. I was saying about yep. the differentiation between yeah, the two? Non-emotive. Non uh, yeah, so some is more about controlling emotion and other is more controlling other kinds of things like right. um, that don't require emotion but do require you to inhibit some kind of behavior. Right, the more Vulcan side Vulcans. <laughs> if you like. <laughs> now, I, I was going to ask, do you think that this kind of uh, processing and development changes over time, but you mentioned that they're, they're really, it's quite a relatively new field in terms of its breadth of research, um, that there isn't a long, I guess, necessarily history of it. But I, I suppose I'm also interested in, you know, are, are there differences across cultures? Is that something, you know, uh, your other friend that was looking at food, I, I guess, would you look at Hershey's versus Cadbury's or Galaxy, you know, because... Yeah, Cadbury's definitely. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I won't even try to argue that one. But uh, yeah, I, I brought Cadbury's into my class. 
classes, and my students also think Cap Reese's. You can't, you can't argue that. No offense to Hershey's, but Reese's is their best thing they got, and that's it. But yeah, so d- d- is yeah. there is there different processing in terms of yeah. different cultures, or um, yeah. is there anything about history over time that has changed? Yeah, so I think that we don't know enough about different cultures, um, yeah. and I think uh, we're expanding now. Mm. Um, in terms of where neuroscience research is going, so we are more likely to look at, well, you know, we're beginning to look at cultural issues right. too, cultural factors. But yeah, it's very likely that you're going to get different responses from different people depending on their experiences, right? So culture is a big part of your experience and how your brain is wired. And, and your brain does change over your lifespan as well. Right. So, you know, we are a group of participants that we have easy access to at college, our college students, but we don't think of them as adults. We think of them as emerging adults. So if you look at babies, they're different from children and children are different from adolescents and adolescents are different from emerging adults and emerging adults are different from regular adults. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then after about the age of 40, sort of middle age, then you start to get changes and then you get, more changes as you approach, you know, older age. Right. So it's, you know, it's a moving field all the time. So uh, on that note, how much, uh, you, you touched on this already in your previous answer, but how much does environment, I guess, influence then development? Oh, hugely. Yeah. Hugely. So, you know, it used to be a very long time ago, people would say, oh, I'm, I'm in the nature camp, meaning um, it's all about the genes and what you've been born with, right? So you're sort of predetermined from birth. And other people would say, no, I'm in the nurture camp. It's all about your experiences. But now we know it's a mixture of both, right? So you have genes that predispose you to certain mental illnesses, perhaps, Mm -hmm. or certain illnesses in general, or how easy it is for you to learn, perhaps. Or, uh, for them to be expressed. But, or, yeah. yeah, but it, all of those things are very malleable. You can change the way the brain is wired mm. by experience. It's in, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book about meditation right now, actually, and they're, they're talking about... It's becoming a big uh, research interest in yeah. neuroscience, too. Yeah, it's People crazy. their brains. And uh, neuroplasticity. Brains and... While they're meditating. Yeah. The the benefits of, um, you know, meditation on how it affects lots of different cognitive functions and which could be, or which have been measured using uh, techniques like EEG recording and fMRI. It's very cool. So how do you define, you know, you, we have over in the UK, you know, you have a lot of uh, things that are deemed antisocial behavior, which I think has different terminology in the states, but the idea is the same. What what deems social behavior in adolescence normal or or successful in that way? Like, how you know what is the kind of checklist of things that we're like, oh yeah, they're they're a normal kid or normal adolescent. Yeah. So we do know adolescence is a time of exploration, right? And it's a time of increased risk taking. It's a time of increased sensation seeking. And it sounds, especially when you're a parent, all of that sounds really scary if you're the parent of an adolescent. Mm. But it's really important. It's a really adaptive phase, right? So you've got to go from being a child to being an adult, a young adult. How do you get there? The hormonal changes that start, the bodily changes that we see during um, puberty, 
is also prompting brain changes, right? So there's hypersensitivity of the reward system, of the emotional systems of the brain. Mm. And what that does is it pushes adolescence towards more risk-taking, more exploration, right? So that's adaptive because if they never went through that, they would never leave home. They'd always be like, yeah, well, you know, I'd like to go buy some new sneakers, but I need my mom to come with me, mm. uh, right? So they, they'd never they'd never leave your family home. They'd never go out. They'd never find a partner. They'd never have kids, mm. right? So all of Stunted that is kind of, development. yeah, it's, it's um, jump-started by these changes in the mm. brain. But at the same time, as you're doing all the really good kind of risk-taking, trying out new things, exploring new people, yeah, sometimes is not good risk-taking, right? So, and that's when, so if you look at mortality rates, there's a huge increase in mortality rates in adolescence, and a lot mm. of those are due to accidents. So, you know, taking physical risks, driving in a car with somebody who's been drinking or forgetting to put your seatbelt on, all of those things. So yeah. in the United States, that's been really um, lowered a lot by having um, laws, state laws that prohibit teens from driving with other teens. Yep. Um, right. So those kind of things are really successful in protecting adolescence. So you don't want to keep your adolescent wrapped in cotton because they'll never leave the family home. Um, Won't but learn. Yeah. You need to, so you need to have them out in the world. So, yeah, it is normal to risk take and it is normal to break rules. Mm. What's antisocial behavior? It's it's hard to say because it's just a very transitional time. Right, so it's like you, you do things in adolescence that you probably will never ever do again in your life. It's also you learn from your mistakes. Well, yeah, that's too. It, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, if you break the law, that's probably crossing the boundary. Yeah. But there are inequalities in terms of how people are treated. So you know, depending if you're a person of color or not, if you have a, a minor misdemeanor and you're a person of color, then you're more likely to be prosecuted than if right. you're white. So, you know, there seems to be a societal difference in what people are willing to overlook in terms of adolescents behaving badly. 100%. And not even just prosecuted, but the way that you're treated on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just want to talk a little bit about your 2014 paper uh, entitled Feedback Processing in Adolescence, an Event-Related Potential Study of Age and Gender Differences. Just, can, can we start off just, can you... Can I make a translator? Yeah, can you give a quick summary just for, just for our listeners yeah. out there? So it's, it's a study where we had people play a gambling game and we looked at their brain responses to whether they won or, or lost. And so in the game, there are four different card colors and you have to learn over the course of the game which are the two high values and which are the two low values. So after a few turns, you figure out that two card colors are, are high values and two are low. But what you don't know is whether you're going to win or lose on a particular turn. Right? So two cards come on the screen and you pick one of them. The card turns over and you see how much you've won or lost. Mm. And then you see, if you'd picked the other one, what you would have got. So we, in this particular paper, we didn't look at 
the other, what what happened right. if you had picked the other. We looked at what happened if in you... terms of the feedback to the one you actually picked. Right. Well, we found a, a, a kind of an interesting gender difference. Yeah, so well, I wanted to ask about this. this. Yeah, yeah, we did this study first just looking at all males. So we had a, a, a male adolescent group and a male adult group. And we got something that was a little bit strange, we thought, that your brain responds to a win, right? Your, your brain basically says, oh, yeah, that was good. So your, your limbic system, so the sort of the deeper part of the brain, the reward processing part of the brain, sends a signal that says, yeah, that was good, to the <laughs> frontal cortex. And the frontal cortex then sends that information to other parts of the brain, says, okay, remember that, let's do that again. Yeah. Right? right. So, it, you know, it could be food, it could be anything. In this case, it's money. What we found was in the original study was that we got these big responses when it was a loss. And if it was a big win, we could saw a big difference in the brain response. If it was a small win, we found that males in our first experiment were processing that kind of like it was a loss. Really? So a small win wasn't very rewarding. Interesting. So we talked about this in my lab, and my lab is mostly women. Hmm. And we talked about gambling behaviors, and we nearly all said, oh, yeah, well, if I go to a casino and I win a small amount, I'm, you know, I'm all done. Yeah. I take it with me and High off fives. I go. <laughs> and then we talked about the males that we knew, our boyfriends, our husbands, whoever, and uh, they all wanted to stay and play more. So then we said, ah, I wonder if this is a gender difference. And so this study actually huh. did confirm that there is a gender difference. So a small win, as, a, as we replicated in this study, doesn't matter if you're an adult or an adolescent, if you're male, a small win is not very rewarding. But if you're a female, it doesn't matter. So I actually hmm. have a, um, a presentation at a conference that says size does matter. Um, <laughs> Excellent title, yeah. But it only actually matters if you're a male. And why do you think that is? You know, is it... You know, evolutionary, perhaps, yeah, where you know the it males is. would have to gather a lot more resources to kind of, you <laughs> know, peacock or whatever um, it is. Yeah. So, so the part of the brain um, that is responsible for this initial "oh, this is good" or "this is bad" um, designation works with a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical called dopamine, and we know that there are gender differences in how the dopamine system works in men and women. And, and you see that in animals. We know that from animal studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in adolescents, there's big changes in the dopamine system in males and lesser changes in the dopamine system in females. Hmm. And when you begin to see these changes in the dopamine system, that coincides with the period of increased risk-taking. So it, it definitely is very related to that. Yeah. yeah. So I was just going to mention one other thing. Yeah, 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 one of course, yeah. From that study was, um, again, about adolescent males. So if we think about the population in general, adolescent males are the biggest risk takers, right? Mm -hmm. So probably because of their dopamine system turning on and being very responsive. So we found them to be kind of hypersensitive to the, the big win, yeah. not, very, not liking the small win a lot. But also, when they got a big loss, their brains seemed not to process that very efficiently. Huh. So their brainwaves were slower, 
than they were in, in adolescent girls. And they showed less difference between their brain waves for wins and losses than the adolescent girls did. So if you like, not so good at telling the difference between something that's good and something that's bad, something that's rewarding, something that's not so rewarding. Yeah. And I'm thinking about this in terms of how, what's the best way to try and change somebody's behavior if you're an adolescent, right? So you can change somebody's behavior by rewarding them. Or you can change somebody's behavior by punishing them. And so if you think of a loss as a punishment and a win as a reward, it seems that the adolescent boys are more sensitive to the rewards than they are to the punishments, right? So maybe hmm. punishment isn't so effective in this particular age group. That's very interesting. That's very... Well, I mean, in light of... I guess it's not that recent, <laughs> You're but... You're thinking back to your adolescence now? Yeah, well, yeah, slightly, right? <laughs> I am thinking back where there's a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, more of the physical fights or stuff like that, you know, and it is a stereotype, but they do happen more so, at least in my experience, not that it doesn't happen with, you know, women, but from my experience, it's been mainly males that would get, you know, the smallest thing would just kind of set them off, and you're just kind of like, where did this even come from, like... You know, but and you think you would learn, right, that it hurts to get in a physical fight. You would think so. <laughs> yeah, um, but maybe there's something about our, uh, the adolescent male brain that is more about trying new things, making your way in the world, making sure you're successful, and and so to do that, maybe you have to kind of be a little bit uh, punishment um, averse. Oh. Oh, lots of process, no pun intended, but... Um, okay, so we are running out of time, so I just want to ask a few last questions. Are there any, are there any emotions in particular that are more difficult to uh, process or perceive uh, than others? And if they're gender-specific, does that play a role in it as well? Yeah, so I haven't necessarily done work in emotion recognition, but okay. we have looked at brainwaves to different emotional faces in other studies um, in adolescence, one that hasn't been published yet, but we're about to publish it. Adolescent males, again, you know, sorry to do it to you again, but adolescent males it's the are science. Not, not, I know, not you, <laughs> but, um, but it means that they have more difficulties processing right. facial emotions, it seems. Just kind of on uh, the for, whole? For everybody, happy is a really easy one to process. People are able to recognize happy faces or even very young children can recognize happy mm. faces pretty consistently. Adolescents have a lot of difficulty with neutral faces and more difficulty with recognizing fearful faces. Mm. And, and maybe it's, it's, some people have suggested it's adolescent specific that actually children might do a little better than adolescents. Yeah. That it's kind of a, a deficit. At, at a particular age and then it kind of recovers but certainly in comparison to adults adolescents are not so good at recognizing fearful expressions and they're more likely to misinterpret a neutral expression that, that would be interesting as a I guess more of an explanation to the risk of behavior if they're less if they can't right. process fearful faces then they're not like oh I'm scared that I'll get in trouble for it it'll be like oh what's the worst that could happen and yeah consequences is usually people use adult faces. Right? Mm. Ah. Um, and there has been um, 
there has been some research showing that you're more likely to remember people's faces if they're the same age as you than if they're in a different age group. So, you know, as I was saying before, the fact that our adolescents didn't really care so much about the social pictures once they'd had the initial look and said, oh, yeah, that's, there's people in there, I should pay attention. And they're yeah. like, oh, no, not my people, right? So perhaps if you had adolescent faces rather than adult faces, maybe it would be easier to recognize facial expressions. But mm. I, there are very few studies actually published that have used adolescent faces hmm. uh, or children's faces for children. It would be really interesting, though, because it also, it, for me at least, it touches into that kind of the very human thing of, of tribalism and easily separating, you know, this is my people, this is your people, you know, even between age it happens. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. so... Uh, yeah. Uh, Brains like to categorize things. Uh, yeah. I love it's it. It's kind of like a shortcut. Well, it's good and it's bad. Well, I, I meant like in the terms of it's like, it's fascinating to me that, I, well, I suppose it also goes into pattern recognition. It's such a big part of us as well uh, in, our, in our success as yeah. a species. All right, so this one last kind of uh, question and then a final little wrap up. But in your experience or in your expertise, rather, wh where is the line between kind of inherent processing and learned processing? And you know, kind of touched upon this when we were talking about environmental impacts. One example would, you know, does an individual that might be either hearing or visually impaired uh, since birth struggle in any way to process emotions or, or in their development, I suppose, because they, they've never seen a face? Or they're, are they more based on tones to compensate for that? I, I think this isn't my area of research, but um, right. I know a little bit about it from sort of teaching classes that relate to these kinds of things. It seems that if you have a visual or a hearing impairment, you are not impaired in recognizing emotions. So obviously, if you can't see, then you wouldn't be able to recognize somebody's, you know, you wouldn't Facial. look at photographs of different right. people and be able to pick them apart. But when you're actually with a person, there are other signs that people give off, even odors, actually. So really? there are, yeah, so people can actually so cool. uh, detect whether or not you're scared from other bits of information so it could be something about your hormones or something yeah. changes anyway and odors are different apparently but also if you can touch a person's face mm. uh, then you you can get information that way so somebody might touch somebody's face and if you're blind you're much better at getting that information through touch than somebody that has normal vision um, and then hearing is sometimes you can pick up on the nuances in people's voices to be able to recognize emotions. Mm. So we think of emotion as being facial expressions, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose even, well, I, not that this is related either, but even, you know, even your pet dog, they can pick up on your, on your tones very right. easily. So. Right. Okay, so this, is, this has been wonderful. I, I just have one last thing, which is, you know, you have a platform right now, being on the podcast, and I just want to know if there's anything that you want to tell us about your research or about your field or really anything now that you have the, the opportunity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not to put you on the spot too much. I but. think we need more funding, right? So, um, That's what every academic says. Really yeah. yeah, every academic says. Um, Sometimes our research is hampered by lack of funding. So, you know, any support, any public support that people are willing to offer mm -hmm. to um, try and encourage policymakers to increase funding for um, research would be really good. I hear you. I'm, 
I'm there with you. All right, well, Jill, thanks, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. I loved it. Uh, I wish I had more time. You're very welcome. Alrighty, everybody, that is going to do it for our show today. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening. And another big thank you to Dr. Gross Pfeiffer for coming on the show. If you want to find past episodes of The Imposter, you can find us on the iTunes Music Store or SoundCloud. Keywords, The Imposter Podcast. And stay tuned, folks, because we are expanding onto new platforms. Ooh, uh, pretty. You can follow me on Twitter at Another Fogel. And don't forget to like and share us on Facebook. Because maybe your friend or your mother or your brother or science teacher or someone you know wants the imposter in their life. And you can provide that. Because sharing is caring at the end of the day. Know what I'm saying? All right, folks. That is actually going to do it for us now. So we will see you next time. But always remember, be the flame to the moth. That's right. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let that simmer on the back burner of your mind as the music slowly fades up, making this very dramatic, but also drowning the absolute.